It's March, 1972, in El Paso, Texas. Not even five in the morning, and already all hell's breaking loose in the million-dollar home of America's most recognizable private eye, J.J. Arms. In the basement of his mansion fortress, J.J. is in the middle of a gunfight. With his revolver gripped tight, he dives to the right as another assailant looms from the shadows. As he rolls, he fires off a round. Boom, headshot, target down. That makes three he's hit so far, and they just keep coming, one after the other, these unknown attackers. Sweat trickles down his back. His breathing gets heavier as he's forced to duck, dive, and roll out of harm's way. To his left, another figure rushes up. Jay spins and squares up. He shoots, blam, straight to the heart. Another perfect hit. There's no time for self-congratulation. This battle's not over, not by a long stretch. He scurries across the open floor, head ducked low, and reaches the place he stashed his shotgun. Dropping the revolver, he grabs the shotgun and spins to face the next two targets already behind him. Blam! The shotgun blast rips through the first and clips the second. JJ rolls over a low barrier, leveling himself to fire off another lethal round straight into the sternum of a guy who's just popped up from behind the wall. How many more attackers are hiding in the shadows? The acrid stench of gunpowder burns his lungs and eyes. His muscles ache, but this is his home, his manor. His wife's upstairs, for God's sake. He won't give up until he's taken them all down. Sensing the movement behind him, Jay swaps the shotgun left and raises his right arm. Time slows. He narrows his eyes, breathes deep, focuses on the fast-approaching target, and flexes a small muscle in his right bicep. Bang! His secret weapon fires perfectly. The target is hit straight through the forehead. Smoke whispers from the barrel of the small magnum concealed in his forearm. Yeah, you heard me right. Concealed in his forearm. Right there in the flesh and bone. I know, but bear with me. I'll explain in a moment. Let's get back to the gunfight in the basement. Silence falls, an awful, tense beat. J.J. Arm stands ready, steadying his breath, waiting for another attack. But nothing comes. The gunfight is over. His assailants are all down. J.J. straightens up and dusts himself off. He's done okay, even if he does say so himself. But damn, these target practice sessions get harder every day. Just think, as the randomized spring-loaded mannequins are lowered once more, juddering back into place, ready for tomorrow's session, J.J. Arms carefully replaces his weapons. This intense gunfight is a training routine he goes through every morning in the soundproof basement of his El Paso home, while his wife slumbers peacefully above. And he makes sure to make it as realistic and lifelike as possible. Practice makes perfect, you know. I mean, it's hard enough being a crack shot out in the field, but try it with hooks for hands. Yeah, you heard me. J.J. Arms has no hands. He lost them when he was just 11. 
An older boy from his neighborhood had found some railroad torpedoes and told Jay to bang them together. Well, he did, and the dynamite blew his hands off at the wrist. But don't for a moment see this as some kind of disability. J.J. Arms can do more with his hooks than most of us can do with our hands. A fact you'll learn for yourself over the next 45 minutes or so. I mean, just ask those dummies back in the shooting gallery. And like I said before, they're not just hooks. Yeah, these claw pincers are a physical part of his body. They're connected directly to the muscles and sinews of his arms and controlled as precisely as the average man can move his fingers. By thought, instinct, and trained response. And he hasn't stopped at the hooks. Like I mentioned back in the shooting range, he also had a small Magnum 22 built into the right hook, which is also controlled by his mind and his muscles. He'll be the first to assure you he can't fire an error. It's mind over matter, he claims which makes it a pretty formidable secret weapon. Anyway, we continue. With his traditional morning routine of exercise, karate, breakfast, and target practice out of the way, JJ heads to his office. It's a high-tech room, which could be a set piece from the latest Bond movie, Diamonds Are Forever. And rightly so. This is, after all, the hub of The Investigators. J.J. Arms' multinational global private investigator agency, and the man in charge is settling in for another action-packed day. As with most of his cases, the one he's about to begin starts with a phone call, not just any call either. The operator tells him it's an international one from Paris, France, but the worried-sounding voice on the other end of the line is familiar because it belongs to the iconic Hollywood actor, Mr. Marlon Brando. Jay, he says, urgent and straight to the point. My son has been kidnapped. I want you to find him. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the wild journey we're about to go on. I'm Mark Dodson, and welcome the detectives don't sleep. Each week, we'll shadow the world's most remarkable sleuths, real detectives who worked extraordinary cases. This week, we're following a man who is, without a doubt, America's most recognizable private eye, J.J. Arms. He's hunted down murderers, kidnappers, robbers, and cheats, worked for millionaires, celebrities, and paupers alike. He survived at least 16 assassination attempts and been shot at more times than he can remember. By the time he's done with the case of Marlon Brando's missing kid, J.J. Arms will have his name in headlines all around the world. He'll almost die in a helicopter near Miss, and he'll have helped the Hollywood legend into 10-year custody battle. From Noiser, this is the ballad of J.J. Arms, and this his detectives don't sleep. It's March 1972, and we're in J.J. Arms' office in El Paso. What a place this is. Even before arriving in the office, 
visitors have the choice between a leather-lined elevator or a spiral staircase with zebra-skin treads to make their way up. Either way, the first thing every guest sees when they get there is a life-size waxwork mannequin of J.J. Arms sitting on the sofa, magazine in hand. It's a playful object with a serious motive. It distracts anyone coming to kill J.J., buying him time to react. The man himself sits behind a 15-foot curved desk, raised up on a platform at the far end of the room. In front of him, a panel full of buttons control everything in the office, from the lights to the doors. One button rotates a paneled wall to become a bar. Another flips a bookcase to reveal an arsenal of automatic weapons, and night vision goggles, and trackers, transmitters, and bugs. No expenses spared up here. The international phone call from Marlon Brando is still underway, and JJ can hear the concern in the actor's voice. He knows Brando from a movie they shot together back in California. But did I mention JJ Arms acts too? No? Well, he does. In fact, before the next year is out, he'll have played the villain, Hookman, in hit crime series, Hawaii 5-0. That's a different story for another time. Anyway, Brando and Arms met when JJ was playing a tiny role in one of Brando's early films. That was before either man was the success story they are now. But a connection was made. They understand each other well enough for Brando to cut right to the chase. His 13-year-old son, Christian, has been kidnapped, and the cops have gotten nowhere trying to find him. He needs J.J. to locate the boy and bring him home safe. J.J. tells Brando he's just heard the news himself on the TV. Only they didn't mention kidnap. They just said he'd disappeared. Then he asks the first and most important question in any kidnap case. Has there been a ransom demand? Brando tells him there hasn't, but he's afraid it might not be about ransom anyway. You see, the much-awaited gangster epic, The Godfather, is about to hit the screens, in which Brando plays the lead role of Don Vito Corleone. Brando's worried that he might have unwittingly offended the mafia with his portrayal of the aging gangster. What if Christian's been taken as some kind of reprisal? Well, this is not Jay's first kidnapping case. In fact, there's something of a specialty of his. He reassures Brando that it's highly unlikely that any self-respecting gangsters would kidnap an actor's kid in revenge for playing a scripted role. If he's offended anyone with his Corleone, they'll be coming for him direct. And JJ should know. The Mafia once tried to throw him from a boat with a lump of concrete tied around his neck. But that, too, is another story. All right, now having ruled out the Mafia connection, he asks Brando to tell him everything he can about the days before Christian's disappearance. There's not much to tell. The boy's been attending a private school down in Ojai, California, but his mother took him out of school late in February because he'd been suffering with a bad case of tonsillitis. School hasn't seen him since. Now, 
This rings alarm bells with JJ. He, like the rest of the world, is only too aware of the bitter custody battle Brando and his ex-wife Anna Kashva have been fighting for the past decade. He tells the actor to contact his attorneys and have them put together a dossier of anything about her that might help. Why? Well, because J.J. is already sure that Anna Kashva knows more than she's letting on. Apparently, it was Kashva who first reported Christian missing, and J.J. wonders whether she may be more directly involved. All the actor will say is that, with her, anything is possible. Brando agrees to get his lawyers to send a file over to J.J.'s office. He says he's stuck in France, filming Last Tango in Paris with Bernardo Petalucci. He'll fly to L.A. as soon as he can and catch up with J.J. there. Meanwhile, I want you to get started, he says. But J.J. Arms already started work the moment the call began. Every single question he's asked the actor is a practice part of his strategy when faced with a kidnap case. What's Christian's normal routine? Who's been around him? Who knows what his plans and movements are? Every tiny detail of the victim's life must be analyzed. After all, the only thing JJ knows for certain is that the boy is not where he's supposed to be. Without a ransom demand, is it even kidnap? Whether he's been taken or he's run away, where is he now? Well, it's probably wise to start where he was last seen, with his mother. I'm historian Ruth Goodman, host of Noise's newest podcast, The Curious History of Your Home. I've spent my life investigating the hidden history of everyday objects. A vacuum cleaner in your cupboard, sleek and compact today. But when it was invented, it was literally powered by horses and took four to six people to operate. The minty fresh toothpaste by a sink. Well, if you lived in ancient Greece, you'd be washing your teeth with ground up bones and oyster shells. Double glazed windows? We owe those to a French king's odd fascination with oranges. The Curious History of Your Home explores the extraordinary in the ordinary. Listen to The Curious History of Your Home each Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. From award-winning podcasters Noiser, The Curious History of Your Home. Moving fast is another of JJ's specialties. He doesn't like to hang around, as you may have guessed. So he wastes no time getting to L.A. and starting surveillance on Anna Kashva. Now, according to Marlon Brando, Anna has told the cops she's got no idea where Christian might be. Jay smells a rat, and he's pretty good at spotting a liar. That's another skill of his, honed over years of practice. <laughs> and boy, has he had some practice. Like the time when two would-be assassins tried to attack him in his own driveway. It followed his Cadillac Seville through the huge iron gate and opened fire on his car, blasting the windows out and piercing the bodywork with shots. The attempt failed. JJ wasn't about to let the matter drop. The next day, he tracked the gunman down, handed him the slugs he plucked out of his car door, and said, he left these at my place last night. Of course, the driver denied all knowledge. 
When pressed, he even offered to take a lie detector test to prove it. Well, J.J. liked the sound of that. Taking the guy back to his ranch, J.J. warned him that this test was pretty unique. It sensed the adrenaline leaking from your pores when you lied. Guy remained unfazed. He just wanted to get done with it. Well, that was a decision he soon regretted when J.J. let a 600-pound Siberian tiger called Gemini into the room on a chain. Imagine that. A live tiger, paws like dinner plates and claws like knife blades, slowly padding towards a guy who, by then, was sure as hell secreting some adrenaline. Unsurprisingly, the gunman confessed all in seconds. <laughs> I mean, who uses a tiger as a lie detector? Anyway, I digress. At least there's no need for tigers out here in California, where J.J. and his officers are watching Anna Kashva. Even without Gemini, he's already sure she's lying about her son's disappearance. He just has to prove it. As well as watching her movements, he busies himself interviewing neighbors, friends, and acquaintances of Kashva's, trying to get a break. Have any strangers visited her? Have any of them seen Christian recently? Any new cars been hanging around? Has the regular mailman changed? It's amazing, really, the kind of detail friends and neighbors are willing to share. In less than a day of interviewing and observing, JJ has built up a pretty clear picture of the ex-Mrs. Brando. It's not looking good. Her house seems to be a hangout for all sorts of unsavory types. People come and go all hours. And according to the neighbors, fights often tumble out into the street. Police are regularly called. One line of inquiry reveals that Anna and a friend of hers are involved in some kind of venture called World Travel Academy, which is headquartered down in Mexicali, just south of the Mexican border. That feels like a good lead because it was from the Mexican border that Anna Kashva first reported Christian missing. The next tip comes from one of Kashva's neighbors, a prim and proper widow who's been so disgusted by the shenanigans at the Kashva home that she's taken to writing down everything she sees, hoping it'll prove useful if anything bad happens. And now, this little list is gold because she's written down the registration number of every vehicle that's visited and when they were there. She's an investigator's dream of a neighbor, nosy and meticulous. She tells Jay that on March the 5th, 1972, just a few days before Christian was reported missing, she noticed a red Volkswagen camper bus outside the house, driven by some hippies. Apparently, it had a World Travel Academy logo on the side. Taking the registration number from her, JJ soon learns that it's registered to the Mexicali-based business, World Travel Academy. Now his senses really start tingling. He's still convinced that Anna Kashva knows exactly where her son is, or at least who he's with. And it's just too suspicious that she reported him missing from the Mexican border just days after her hippie friends and the Mexican-registered red Volkswagen visited her. It's time to find the camper bus. I've already told you, 
J.J. Arms Private Eye Agency, the investigators, has branches all over the world. He has hundreds, if not thousands, of operatives working for him. He quickly dispatches an agent to each of the three ports of entry in Mexico, Tijuana, Tecate, and Mexicali. He tells him to check the records of all vehicles crossing the border after March 5th against the nosy neighbor's list, looking in particular for that red Volkswagen bus. While he's waiting for the reports, J.J. makes arrangements to charter a Hughes 500 helicopter. And of course, he's going to be flying her himself. He's no stranger to piloting choppers either. Did you know he once used a helicopter to rescue an American client from a Mexican prison? Well, he did. In fact, that particular caper allegedly inspired the Charles Bronson movie, Breakout. But again, that's another story. This helicopter JJ has chartered can carry five passengers in comfort. It's a beast. The thing will cruise at 140 miles per hour with a range of well over 400 miles at 5,000 feet. So it's perfect for covering a lot of ground fast, which is exactly what JJ needs for this case. With the helicopter secured, J.J. gets a call from his agent down at the border near Mexicali. He's right. The red Volkswagen bus passed through the border there on Monday. But that's four whole days ago. It could be anywhere by now. Fortunately, Jay knows a few things about crossing into Mexico. One, you have to give a destination address to get an entry permit. And two, you need to say how long you're staying. On top of that, the borders in Mexico hold on to the title documents for your vehicle, meaning that you have to leave via the same port you entered if you want your papers back. A few more questions to the Border Patrol confirms the entry permit for the red Volkswagen was made in the name of James Barry Wooster, who said his destination was the Mexican peninsular state of Baja, California. According to the records, he hasn't left Mexico again. JJ thinks the names and the destination are likely to be made up, but at least the vehicle is still in the country. And that's the lead. So JJ calls the airport in San Diego, tells him to put the Hughes 500 helicopter on standby, and boards a plane from LA to go and collect it. Arriving at the border post, JJ meets up with his agent, who has five Mexican federal police standing by with a promise to help. Of course, they'll have to pay him up front, but that's not unusual. The federales, as they're locally known, have been briefed with everything JJ and his team have discovered and have promised to help search the towns and villages along the coast. Despite their bonus paycheck, the federales are unimpressed to learn that J.J. intends to go all the way down to the tip of the Mexican peninsula of Baja, California, if need be. Baja, California is a 600-mile sliver of inhospitable land. It's a long stretch of unpaved roads, mountain passes, forests, rocky coastline, tiny fishing villages, and expanses of arid desert not easy search and rescue territory. JJ assures him 
You'll travel all the way around the 2,000-odd miles of coastline, but that's what it takes to find the boy. Grudgingly, the Federales agree. J.J. smiles, a boyish grin, which lights up his dark eyes. It's time to get the show on the road. To the chopper. And that's where he hits his next hurdle. One by one, the nervous-looking Federales explain why they can't possibly travel in a helicopter. For the first officer, it's his terrible air sickness. Can't even go up an elevator. The second officer has nine children. He's worried about making orphans of them. The excuses from the other three are just as creative. J.J. knows exactly what's going on. None of them can take their eyes off the two gleaming hooks on the end of his arms. Can't really blame their hesitation. I mean, would you go up in a chopper piloted by a man with no hands? The thing is, those hooks are more dexterous, more sensitive, and more useful than any regular hands. Over the years, he's had multiple adaptations and attachments developed. Guy's more versatile than a Swiss army knife. These nervous federales can't possibly know that each hook can exert up to 38 pounds of crushing pressure, more than three times that of a human hand, or that he can punch through plate glass, lift metal from open flame, and break through a wood-paneled door with a single punch. With these same hooks, they can be just as delicate as they are lethal. He can pick up a cupcake without crushing it. He can paint, play tennis, and of course, fly a helicopter. These hooks, you see, are not substitute hands. They're his tools and his weapons. Imagine being able to grab the blade in a knife fight and crush it with your bare hands. JJ can do that. In fact, think of anything that could burn, slash, crush, or shatter an average human hand. And JJ Arms is pretty much immune to them all. So the five hesitant federales can't possibly realize just how good a pilot J.J. is. And no matter what bribes or persuasions he offers, they're not willing to find out. Finally, they agree to follow him on land in a jeep. They'll check in with each other several times a day. And if either party finds anything, they'll hurry to meet up. It's not the best solution, but it's the only one the Federales are going to accept. With last preparations made and water and supplies on board, J.J. takes to the skies. He's got a young boy to find. And the clock is already ticking. Now, by this point, you've probably already figured out that J.J. Arms is no stranger to Jeopardy. But he doesn't make a habit of putting himself at risk for no reason. He's sampled the best and worst of Mexican food many times before. And he's not about to let Montezuma's revenge slow him down. So the only thing he plans to consume is the supply of water he's brought with him. That and some sugar-free gum. Beginning his first sweep, J.J. is filled with optimism. He's never accepted a case he hasn't solved. He doesn't plan on this being the first. The landscape below quickly becomes a blur of dry scrubland dotted with towns and villages. Fishing hamlets skim past and dirt roads weave through the hills like a network of dusty veins. Surely, 
red Volkswagen will stand out a mile here. But the first sweep comes up blank. The second and third, the same. He lands only to refuel or to fire questions at the rural fishermen, angry at the huge thrumming chopper disturbing their catch. As night falls the first day, he puts the helicopter down and calls the Federales for an update. Sadly, they too have had no luck. They've been stopping in every village on their way down country, asking questions. So far, no one's had anything to share. The next two days follow the same pattern. As soon as dawn breaks, the whirly bird is up in the air and search begins again. All the while, JJ's aware that his target could be on the move too. They may well be back in a village he's already checked. By the third day, he's feeling the strain. He's been wearing the same jeans and shirt since he started the mission. He's filthy with dust and sweat. His chin is grizzled with a covering of stubble. His eyes feel raw and gritty. He's tired, he's hungry, and his frustration is mounting. And that's when things start to get a bit strange. Maybe the lack of decent food or proper night's sleep has begun to affect him. The ever-changing landscape begins to look worryingly familiar. He starts to question himself. Has he passed over that village before? Is he lost? Is he retracing his steps unnecessarily? All of a sudden, everywhere he looks, he sees that red bus. Like a dying man stumbling through the desert, seeing only sparkling water holes. Now, every bush or rock looks like the vehicle he's searching for. And yet, when he lands to check, it's nothing more than a mirage. As night falls on the third day, JJ is growing despondent. It'd be easy to give up and go home, but JJ Arms is no quitter. That bus is out here somewhere, and he's gonna find it. Bit of shut-eye, he'll be back on the job. The next morning, he starts before dawn, a renewed determination firing him on. Conditions have changed, though, and now there's a mist hanging over the sea rolling towards the land. This means that he has to keep the chopper low as he hugs the coastline. He's flying close to the water, just above stalling speed. His eyes scan back and forth, searching for that elusive bus. It's tiring, relentless, and repetitive. Suddenly, a huge rock column looms out of the mist, filling the windscreen right in front of him. He's about to crash, Instinct kicks in, and Jay hits pretty much every button on the dashboard, pulling the bird into a vertical climb, engine screaming and rotor blades shuddering. With just inches to spare, using all 317 horses in her tank, the helicopter clears the outcrop with her pilot drenched in sweat, still half expecting a fatal impact. JJ levels her out again and lets out a breath. Thank God those Federales refused to fly with him. Had the chopper been fully laden, they would have never made it. Adrenaline still surging, JJ heads back to the coastline, hovering while he checks his location. He's already traveled about 200 miles from his start point this morning, so he's got 50 more miles before he has to either turn back 
or find somewhere else to land and refuel. As he hovers, making his decision, he spots them. Brightly colored tents, right in the shadow of that stone pillar that nearly killed him. A sharp investigator's instincts, honed over many cases, kicks in immediately. Those tents need a closer look. Pulling the helicopter in a wide arc, he assesses the bay. Caves line the rock face, and on the sloping beach below is a cluster of bright red and orange tents. Camping gear is strewn haphazardly around the beach, though there's no sign of any of the campers. As he banks towards the land, something glints in the sun. It's the chrome bumper of a red Volkswagen bus, half tucked away under brush and trees. Now, not quite trusting his eyes, JJ makes another wide circle over the bay to double check. It's no mirage this time. He's found what he's been looking for. He pulls away and lands about a mile from the bay. Grabbing his binoculars and making sure his weapons are loaded and ready, he sets off on foot. Looking down from the cliff edge, he scans the camp. Still no movement, but he's still able to confirm that the registration on the bus is the one he's been looking for. He trudges back to the chopper and calls the Federales. Now all he can do is wait in the shade of the Hughes 500, sipping on his water. Can't move on the camp until the Federales get here. Four torturous hours later, the Federales Jeep comes barreling along the dirt road, throwing up a great cloud of dust. So much for keeping a low profile. Having shown them the camp, J.J. tells the officers to go down there and start making some arrests. Mexico is their territory, after all. Well, federales don't agree with his take. It's his case. He's in charge. He should be the one to go into camp. They'll be right behind him all the way. Sick of wasting time, J.J. shrugs and heads down the sloping rock wall as fast as he can is 38 drawn and ready. Reaching the first tent, JJ rips open the flap and yells, All right, everybody out. Put your hands on your heads and come out here. A man and a woman inside, mostly naked, looked up, bleary-eyed, confused. They're obviously still working off whatever they smoked or drank last night. Offering no resistance, they both stand, hands up, and follow JJ's instructions to brace themselves against the cliff. Meanwhile, he pulls the inhabitants of the second tent, equally naked, into the glaring sunlight. As they join their quivering campmates at the rocky wall, JJ opens the third tent to find a man lifting a scuba diving spear gun up to face him. JJ levels his 38 and calmly tells him, drop it or I'll drop you. The man does as he's told, and he's soon out on the beach with his friends. Eight of them in total, all lined up against the wall. They don't look up to a fight, but JJ isn't taking any chances. Planning to get the Federales to watch them while he looks for the boy, he turns to issue the instruction. He finds they're not there. In fact, 
They're still loitering nervously at the top of the cliff, which means they've left Jay down there alone with eight full-grown, albeit naked, adults. Calls them down, and they reluctantly approach. JJ leaves him to guard the shivering hippies and heads off to search for young Christian Brando. Now there's one last tent closer to the water's edge. When Jay opens it, he finds a teenage boy in stained jeans trying to hide under his sleeping bag to avoid the terrifying man with hooks for hands waving a gun in his doorway. It's him, Christian Brando. He's terrified, but alive, and he needs a doctor. Having reassured the boy that he's there to help, JJ checks him over quickly. He's running a high temperature and has a racking cough. The tent floor around his bed is speckled with flecks of blood. Now, JJ's no doctor, but he knows pneumonia when he sees it. Can't waste any time getting the boy treated. He asks the Federales to arrest the hippies and bring them back to the border. Once again, the men refuse his request. Turns out, despite them having living, physical proof of the kidnap, they can't arrest the hippies for it. The charge wasn't brought in Mexico, so it's not their problem. Now he's torn between wanting to see them brought to justice and needing to get Christian to a hospital. JJ realizes He's going to have to let this one slide. Hopefully, the American cops will be able to track him down later. Instead, he leaves the Federales to make their way home in their Jeep, and he scoops Christian into the helicopter and powers away, homeward bound. He has Christian checked over in a hospital in San Diego and dosed up with penicillin. The doctor reluctantly releases the young boy into Jay's care on the promise that they'll fly straight to his father in L.A. and get him into a hospital there. Agreeing, J.J. makes one further call before setting off to Brando's lawyers. They tell him the actor is actually with them right now and wants to speak to him. When Brando takes the phone, he still sounds as concerned as he had on the first day. He worriedly asks when he and J.J. can meet, saying he has more information that might be useful. But Jay cuts him off. He tells him to relax. He's already on his way back to L.A., and he's got Christian with him. Well, Marlon Brando can't believe what he's hearing. J.J. Arms has done it. He's found his boy, and he's bringing him home safely. When J.J. hands a tearful Christian back to his father, there are hugs, smiles, and handshakes all around, accompanied by the frantic snapping of the nation's press. It marks the end of yet another successful case for America's greatest private investigator, and one which cements his place in the P.I. Hall of Fame. The hippies were eventually rounded up, but claimed that Anna Kashva had paid them 10000 bucks to hide their son for a while. She, however, said her friends from the World Travel Academy had offered to take her and Christian away on vacation in Mexico. At the last minute, she'd been unable to go and sent them on ahead with her son, saying she'd join him at the border. She says 
When she got there, they were nowhere to be seen, and she then reported her son missing. It's a bit strange then. She didn't think to share any of this information with the cops in the first place. JJ's inclined to believe the hippie's version. Either way, the kidnap charge doesn't hold up too much. Shame the cops didn't have a 600-pound Siberian tiger on hand to get the truth. When the case went to court, Marlon Brando finally won custody of his son. I would love to say that there was a Hollywood ending and they all lived happily ever after. Sadly, Marlon Brando was right when he said they'd messed up the kid with all their fighting. 1990, Christian Brando shot his sister's fiance dead and ended up serving five years on a manslaughter charge. Perhaps his lungs never recovered from his kidnapping ordeal either, because he died of pneumonia in 2008, aged just 49. That wraps up this particular caper. Pretty wild case, huh? But it's all in a day's work for a detective like J.J. Arms. There are thousands of other cases which would wow you just as much. I could have told you about the jobs he did for Howard Hughes, King Faisal, or the Burtons, or the time he went on an 8,000-mile manhunt all the way to Thailand to catch a murderer. But I think by now, you get the picture. Now, in his early 90s, after seven decades of relentless investigations, he's still not retired. He probably never will. He's downsized both his investigative activities and his El Paso home. But his personality remains larger than life. He'll always be one of the greatest, most prolific, and most successful private investigators of all time. J.J. Arms is an incredible man with an amazing history. You won't find a more vibrant, eccentric, or unique private eye. He really is one of a kind. Next time on Detectives Don't Sleep. It's the roaring 20s in America, the era of prohibition and gangsters. In other words, a busy time for any detective. In Lakehurst, New Jersey, 41-year-old Ivy Guyverson is found tied up in her own home after two thieves broke in and killed her husband, William. The pipe-smoking master detective, Ellis Parker, is called in to lead the investigation. It doesn't take him long to figure out all is not as it seems. Was a dead man linked to bootleggers? Does he know his killer? And why does Ivy appear so unaffected by her husband's death? Maybe she's just not the crying sort. Or maybe she knows more than she's letting on. Find out in the next episode of Detectives Don't Sleep. <laughs>